Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Episode 155 of The Morning After. I'm Jesse Kiefer. I'm Sarah Kamen. On today's show, one of the most influential people in food journalism, period, Mimi Sheraton. And she has just written a new book, A Thousand Foods to mm-hmm. Eat Before You Die. We'll talk with her about that after the break. And later in the show, we will give Mimi the least important test of her life, The Morning After Quiz. But first, Miss Sari Kamen with this week's food news. Indeed. Okay, to begin with, there is a new caffeinated peanut butter that has just hit the market. So unlike, you know, all the caffeinated sports drinks out there, Red Bull, whatnot, that make you crash because of all the sugar, the caffeinated peanut butter is apparently um, supposed to give you a lot of energy because the fat that's also part of the peanut butter but it's already controversial and senator chuck schumer is trying to get it off the market because he's worried that kids are going to eat the peanut butter and not realize like that it's highly highly caffeinated so <laughs> i'm also thinking like so many kids have peanut allergies so well then, like, that too. they add caffe- caffeinated peanut butter to those peanut allergies yeah so right now it's like being it's being marketed specifically to athletes but if it does hit stores i mean now, now you could order it online any kid could go in and be like oh peanut butter <laughs> <laughs> Mimi, could cause potential problems. Mimi, would you try it? Uh, is it being made by the same standard brands of peanut butter, Jif and Skippy? It's because being made... That, unless it's a totally different it brand. It is a different brand. It's called Steam. So it's like a... Sold in yeah. food stores? Not yet. I think it's on, or specialty food stores right now and online, but I think the, the hope is that eventually it could be mainstream. Seems totally unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, Abs- I, mean I don't know why you would want to put those things together. Have a cup of coffee with your peanut butter sandwich. And, and there you go. Because it, it already exists. It sounds spiteful <laughs> to me. It's fine. I don't know. I kind of like the idea. The only thing I can think of it, how it would be relevant is if you're like a marathon runner. Yeah. And you like take a spoonful of that while you're like, like while you're exercising. You, you need a little pick me up, but you don't necessarily is want another such cup a of thing coffee. Is pure caffeine. Can you take a spoonful of whatever caffeine? I think it's called cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I've, well, only, I've only heard that. That would cut out a lot of middlemen. Yeah. <laughs> Kids might not be as confused. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Very good news this week. Apparently, drinking champagne can help improve memory loss and protect your brain against dementia. Did you hear this, Mimi? No, but uh, one has to remember to be able to pay for it. <laughs> you don't joke stuff. So people are popping bottles everywhere, celebrating. The problem is it's just like red wine, where they say like a little bit of red wine is good for your heart in moderate consumption. And people are like, kind of defeats the purpose. Sounds like a study financed by the champagne growers. Exactly. Might be. Exactly. Well, I, I just wonder how that's possible. I mean, the, the only difference with champagne is obviously the effervescence and the added sugar. I So what... Well, it's a different grape, so perhaps... Different grapes, but, you know, you can make 
you there know, is a scientific champ- you make re- champagne from pinot noir you make red wine from pinot noir so uh, well apparently it's it's not the flavonoids which are what um protects your brain in red wine because champagne doesn't have flavonoids but because it doesn't have skin contact Okay, uh, but it's through it functions through the actions of smaller phenolic compounds. Uh, you lost me. It was a lot of science. Hey, you asked. <laughs> that's the answer. I don't know what that means, but that's science. Well, I'll take it. Okay. Cheers. <laughs> Champagne in all the nursing homes. There you go. There. Exactly. I mean, that's if that's not killing two birds with one stone, I don't know what is. Does I mean, it have to be French champagne, or can it be California, New York? Well, yes, yeah, can it be? It's I don't know it about just the champagne, GOC. or is it yeah. sparkling wine? Okay. Excellent question. Is it the grape? <laughs> we'll report back. <laughs> we'll report back. The French GOC has not gotten involved yet, so <laughs> they can't remember. <laughs> okay. Brace yourself. This is this is our this is our last piece of food news, and it's it's a rough one. Okay, there's a Japanese porn star in Japan. He's opened a restaurant. He is serving curry that tastes like poop. Curried what? <laughs> curry, curry that, that tastes, tastes like like poop. poop. How does he know what poop tasted like? <laughs> well, that's what I my first question is. I mean, I might. I'm assuming he must have tried it to do his research. So he is like a very, very famous porn star in Japan. He's known as the king of porn. He has a new restaurant. It's called Curry Shop Shimuzu. And he is, I think he makes one dish and it's a curry dish that supposedly mimics poop. And he explains that uh, the restaurant is an attempt, this is in quotes, attempt to satisfy an unlikely lifelong desire to find out what excrement tastes like. So for those well, of you out if there... if it's in curry, you're not really finding out what excrement tastes like. Well, you would have to taste it plain to really know. But the... Right. Okay. <laughs> but it's the closest thing to it if you don't want to actually eat poop. But you're actually eating it or... You just, you're not. Oh, you're eating curry that tastes like poop. Nice. So if you you have this like burning curiosity to find what out what it tastes like... What kind of poop? Poop poop. Human animal? Human? Cat, I don't know. Dog? I'm I don't sure know. they're all different. Maybe there's different kinds. All I'm I've sure. got to say is this restaurant's going down the toilet. Uh, well, <laughs> he has said that um, 300 customers visited in the first month and over 90% managed to finish their, their bowls. Any clean. come back? Any repeat business? There have been repeat business, yes. Yeah. And Mimi, I have to ask, you have been all over the world and you have tasted food in all different places and varieties would you taste this would i taste it of course of course she said would i taste real poop probably not okay there is you know in indonesia uh, i did come across and had it it's a very priceless ingredient coffee made of bird poop Mm -hmm. there are birds in indonesia that eat the berries at a certain degree of ripeness and their poop is collected and dried and sanitized and is an extremely expensive coffee. I've heard of that. It's very yeah, coveted yeah. and very I rare. I did not think it was particularly wonderful, but I had no problem trying it. It's called Indonesian bird shit coffee. <laughs> there you go. You heard it here, people. Plain and simple. <laughs> Japan, get Japan. your head on straight. Get your head on straight. <laughs> All right, we'll take a break here. We'll come back with Mimi Sheridan.
and we're back here on the morning after. Native New Yorker Mimi Sheridan was a food journalist well before the age of celebrity chef. In 1975, she made history when she became the first woman to hold the title of food critic for the New York Times. She has written for countless publications and authored many books, including her latest, 1,000 Foods to Eat Before You Die, which I hear was 10 years in the making. That's absolutely right. And uh, when I originally planned it and signed a contract, I thought it would be delivered in two years. But it just went on and on and on. Uh, Not every day for 10 years, but more or less on the back burner for that long. Well, you also chose quite a large number of foods to try. It was a large number, and there had to be sources for every single thing, a way to get everything. So that took an enormous amount of time because it's obviously all over the world, and it might be in a restaurant, it might be in a food store, orderable, mail order, or a recipe for it, in which case I checked books and online sites for the recipes that I thought were closest to what I had in mind. And when something takes... Ten years, your earlier sources may close, such as restaurants, which are still closing, and we're still bringing the book up to date in subsequent printings. This is a never-ending project. Though. I'm afraid it's like stepping in chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, the catalyst behind starting Thousand Foods to Eat Before Well, you it die? was inspired by a book called A Thousand Places to See Before You Die. And I was at a dinner party, and that author was at the table, and she gave me a book. And I knew Workman. They're the publishers of very many good food books. And um, I called Peter Workman and said, you know, how about a 1,000 foods to eat before you die? When I broached it at home, my husband said, you're out of your mind. And he was right, because I think he knew exactly what would happen. But we worked out the deal, and we did it, and the workmen was marvelous. They never once threatened to pull the plug, and they were helpful on a lot of research. So it came to be. How did you... I mean, a thousand foods sounds like an enormous amount of foods, but considering your incredibly extensive career, I mean, I'm, I'm imagining there was a lot of foods that you... That probably didn't make the book. My original list, which I just sat down and did out of my head, more or less, was almost 1,800 things. Because some of the things are ingredients, some are actual dishes, some are particular restaurants in which I recommend a particular meal. Some are inspired by books and movies and paintings. So there's a wide variety of um, sort of ideas uh, in it, and then I tried. Uh, I eliminated, in the interest of a, a global balance, I wanted Africa, I wanted Southeast Asia, Australia. So, if you know, I I could easily have done a thousand from France or Italy, uh, or China. So some had to go to make room for others, and then we didn't want, say, fifteen chocolate cakes. So that was another way of eliminating, and. Um, And that's how it happened. Uh, Also, if there was something that wasn't terribly, terribly important and I couldn't find any kind of source for it, we left that out. Do you feel like you could have written this book, say, in your 40s? Do you feel like it had to be written now? Sure, I could have. I don't know if it would have been as good or as interesting or as widespread. Um, I traveled a lot before my 40s, so... 
I had already been over all over Asia and Soviet Union and Europe and large part of Latin America. I had not yet been to the Middle Yes, I had been to the Middle East by then. Maybe so, we should say then, your 20s. <laughs> your 20s, yeah, right? I could have written about Brooklyn. <laughs> a thousand things to eat in Brooklyn before you get out. That's <laughs> I would read that book. Yeah, that sounds like a good book. <laughs> so all these places that didn't make the list, where do they live for you? And is like, is there a possibility of maybe doing like another book or putting together like a collection or? No more books. No more books. Okay. But there is one thing I left out that's one of my three favorite comfort foods in the whole world. It was on the original list. I could have sworn I wrote it. When the galleys came, it wasn't there. I said to the editors, where is? And they said, you never gave us Mapo Dofu, the great Sichuan, very hot and spicy tofu dish tossed with ground pork. And it just isn't in the book. I thought if I write anything, maybe it'll be an ode to Mapo Dofu to make up for it. It's one of my three favorite comfort dishes. Huh. So, Any other regrets, like as far as the way that the process went or any way you would have done your research differently or places you never quite made it to? I probably wouldn't have done it at all. <laughs> the book itself was the regret. <laughs> Well, I we're would have glad had that a you did. Life. <laughs> uh, my regret is that my husband did not live to see the book come to fruition. He died about six months before it came out, and you know he went through all the Sturm und Drang. But he was Italian American. My married name is Falcone, and I'm happy to say the book was published in Italian by Rizzoli. And they give my name as Mimi Sheraton Falcone. So I think that would have made him very, very happy. And and interestingly, Italians don't really like to say die. And with a thousand places and a thousand foods, instead of saying before you die, they said nella vita, in your life. So I like uh, that too. Yeah, it's kind of um, poignant, yeah. perhaps, or revealing. Yeah. But it's selling very well in Italy, so I'm happy about that. Yeah. What do you think you would have done or could have done in your life had you not pursued becoming like a food journalist or food I would have been a doctor. Really? Yeah. I was interested in research, not necessarily in taking care of patients, but um, the the heroes to me were people like uh, Madame Curie, for example, Uh, women doctors, So what was it that got you into food? Well, it was easy. I came from a very food-minded family. My mother was a great cook. We always talked about what we were eating at the table. And my father was in the business. He was a wholesale fruit and produce merchant in uh, Washington Market, now known as Tribeca. And he would come home and talk about the fruits and produce that came into the market from all over the country. And he would have marked preferences. Uh, He didn't like apples from the West Coast. He liked Northeast apples because there weren't enough cold nights on the West Coast. He preferred grapefruit from Florida, but oranges from California. Uh, So it was the talk of uh, discernment, I think, that lodged in my mind. Something you certainly inherited. was my mother's cooking, which we said, don't make it this way, make it that way. 
Plus, they loved to go to restaurants. And for the first eight years of my life, I was an only child. And being a girl who liked to dress up and liked the scene, they took me a lot to restaurants, which I just loved. I loved, and I still do. I mean, if I don't go to a restaurant, even if it's a Greek diner, I get very antsy. And to give you an idea, um, I was once in Chicago doing a food story, and there's a very famous uh, super, super Greek coffee shop called Lou Mitchell that's right down in the financial district near the Mercantile Exchange. Opens very early in the morning because the market's open early, 5 o'clock. And it's, there's always a long line because it's super, super breakfast. And I was standing on this line. I was alone, about 15 minutes. And finally, when it came my turn, the manager or the owner, I don't know which to this day, took me to a table and asked, where is your place? I said, what do you mean, my place? He said, you have a restaurant, don't you? I said, no, I don't. What made you think so? He said, the way your eyes were working the room. <laughs> so I thought, What a pickup line. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought of that, but I thought, what an observant man to, to notice what someone was looking at waiting on the line. But I do love it. I did a lot of work um, for Restaurant Associates when they were creating the Four Seasons Restaurant, a lot of food research. And in seeing how that restaurant was put together, the attention paid to every single aspect, two weeks to choose the right black pepper for the table, uh, testing the height of the chairs, the blades on the steak knives, gave me an idea of what should be paid attention to uh, in creating and maintaining a restaurant and taught me what to look for as a critic. Speaking of being a critic, what was was your role as the critic different than the role of the food critic now, or was it very much? Very I much think the it same? was the same. I think what's different is what you're dealing with. I think the scene is different, um, but I assume the method and and everything, the concerns. Different critics have different concerns, different styles. Uh, I often think that honest writers, not hacks, but honest writers, write what they like to read. And my reviews were much plainer, in a way, than the way a lot of reviews are being done now, because I'm seriously interested in the food and the restaurant and not so much interested in proving I'm into the current zeitgeist. Did you, as a, as a critic or I guess now as after you finished your being a, being a critic, it was eight years, right? Yes. Now, do you feel like you wish you had, there was a restaurant that you could review at this point in time? Did you, did you miss one review that, that you wish you had gotten? Not really. When I left the times, I was for five years, the national critic of the Condé Nast traveler and in Europe, and they sent me to Israel, and Time magazine sent me to China. So I got to write about food in a lot of different places. Travel was really, to me, the lure. I tried to think of food stories that would take me someplace I wanted to go at somebody else's expense. So I once worked for a man 
an editor who said, you're one of the people who seems to be doing one thing but is really doing something else. (laughs) And that was true. And he figured you out. He figured me out. (laughs) But they got their money's worth. (laughs) (laughs) You delivered. Right. Do you have a favorite book that you've written? You've written so many. (laughs) It may be my first one, From My Mother's Kitchen, which is autobiographical. It has family stories alternating with chapters on recipes. So perhaps that's dearest to my heart. But I also love the Bialy Eaters because of the people and the history and the contacts I made all over the world with people who were former Bialystockers who, because of the Holocaust, moved to many other places of the world. And the Bialy was their Madeline. And I got letters from all over the world. I wrote an article about my trip, not only in the Condé Nast Traveler, but in the Forward and in a a quarterly that went to all former Bialystokers, people who lived in Bialystok, Poland, which is where the Bialy originated. And that was a very poignant and um, touching uh, story to me. Yeah. Um, which is a, a great segue from my next question, which makes me think about like at this point in your life and when you reflect on your career, are there are there things you feel nostalgic for? You know, whether they were certain places that no longer exist or just, you know, certain food trends or just the way kind of like life was before, you know, there was this big like celebrity and fanfare surrounded around chefs and I'm nostalgic for having someone else pay my restaurant bills (laughs) (laughs) that was lovely but um, I mean there were moments in places you know in uh, for example in Shanghai one day was a rainy day and I had a wonderful um, guide interpreter who went all over China from the Time magazine hired him for the month to be with me and um, it was raining and we were doing everything on foot and he decided he better go and call a car and in those days you had to go far to find a phone they weren't all over and he left me in a food market waiting for him and it was September and they were making moon cakes these big pastries filled with candied fruits and um, I was standing there at the assembly line where the women were wrapping them and then they stamped them with a, a red dye that probably says happy moon harvest or something and I was standing there so long that one woman handed me a stamp and indicated that as long as I was standing there I might as well help and so (laughs) there I was this girl from Brooklyn turning out mooncakes so that was there's a certain camaraderie between me and those women with whom I probably couldn't exchange very many words you know I mean, I only know food Chinese. So, <laughs> so that, that was a moment. And then not long ago, 2009, I was in Hanoi. I was doing a story for Smithsonian on eating street food with Alan Gilbert, the conductor of the New York Philharmonic, who was a friend. And I did this piece on running all over Hanoi. And the pho, the real pho, the noodle noodle and meat soup that they eat, is served very late at night. It's not served in the daytime. The only kind served in the daytime has chicken in it. So they're not the real kind. And they took me to a very authentic place in an alley 
that had a huge table with about 40 compartments of things you could have added to your foe. And they fixed up a bowl for me. And it had some kind of meat in it that was very tough. It was almost like jerky, but it wasn't. And I was trying to find out what it was. And the vendor, uh, he didn't have any French. He didn't have any English. So someone jumped over to interpret. And finally, he pointed to his groin. (gasps) And he said, it's from a man. And I could only think, ouch, (laughs) what poor devil. But it was a bull's penis. (laughs) But, you know, sliced. You didn't see the whole thing. That would have meant (laughs) a very big bowl. Well, it would have been obvious. It would be more obvious (laughs) what it is then. And a hell of a big bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But it just tasted like dried beef. I mean, I would have eaten it if I know what it was because... I mean, I've had Rocky Mountain oysters in, outside of uh, Denver. Yeah. So why wouldn't you eat the other part? <laughs> yeah. Mimi, what was the culture of chefs like when you got started in food journalism? Well, it was just beginning to be celebrity chefs, begun in France by Paul Bocuse and the young chefs of the Nouvelle Cuisine. That began to put a spotlight on chefs in a way it had not been before. It was then picked up in this country by a number of very well-educated guys who had had other professions and decided to be chefs and approached it with a different kind of seriousness. An outstanding example was Barry Wine, who had been a lawyer and decided he would rather be a chef, and he started many trends at the Quilted Giraffe. So we were just beginning to see the trickle-down of Nouvelle Cuisine in this country and the celebrating of chefs, something I don't totally like, but as Andre Soltner of Lutece pointed out to me, Paul Bocuse changed the image of a chef from a servant to a professional, and they all felt that although it's going to be misused, basically it was a very good thing. So that's kind of when you think food trends started happening? Oh, I think there were always food trends. I think uh, they might have been corny, but I think there were always food trends. I, I remember the 1939 World's Fair, which had many food demonstrations and got people interested in all kinds of things that suddenly began to show up in newspaper, uh, home economics stories. And so I think there were always trends. They increased very much after World War II because air travel enabled more people to go to places, because we began to have mass media. I mean, people were cooking on TV way back in the 50s, Dion Lucas, people like that. So I think everyone became more aware, and I think it's a very good thing. Were there any trends that surprised you? Nothing surprised me more than Americans taking to sushi the way they did. I would never have thought so many people would eat raw fish in this country. So that really... What do you think it was about the the sushi that was appealing? Well, originally to the, um, let's say, style leaders, what what they appreciated was it was low fat, it was light, it was pretty. Japanese design in architecture and fabrics were also very popular at that time, which is often where a trend starts. When Scandinavian furniture was the trend, there were many good Scandinavian restaurants in Manhattan. So I think that did. But I think 
the the style makers liked the whole look of the thing, and people began to hear about it. I think there are still people who go to sushi restaurants but prefer maybe the cooked things. Maybe they order the shrimp, which are not usually served raw or something like that. But, um, I mean, it's now there's a sushi department in almost every supermarket. So Yeah. And then, of course, there were people who always ate herring. Herring is raw fish. So for that group, this wasn't much of a stretch. Yeah. What about like the like the fetishizing about food that's sort of taking place right now? Like the obsession with like kale and, and certain, you know, sort of more like almost like hipster food. <laughs> I think it's inevitable and deplorable, especially it's deplorable. Kale. <laughs> especially kale. What well, what I think is deplorable Do you is, hate kale? Do you hate kale, Mimi? I <laughs> I hate kale unless (laughs) it was cooked as it used to be in soul food, which is cooked with ham hocks, very, very soft, and absorbs some of the fat and becomes quite lovely. And the Chinese cook it that way with a different fat. The Italians cook it with garlic and oil until it comes down to that nice, soft state. But the way they're serving it now, I think it's like eating green paper. So. (laughs) Uh, so jokes on you. What I mind about all of these uh, uh, causes, let's say, is they become moralistic. And you begin to feel that you're an inferior person if you're not buying organic or you're not buying local. I'm not a locovore, although probably two-thirds of everything I buy is local. Uh, <clears throat> I prefer to get the best from wherever I can get it when I can. I order at least once during the summer Georgia peaches, uh, even though I, you know, pretty good ones at the Union Square Green Market, but not like Georgia Freestone. So I like to keep the benchmark in mind. Yeah. Are there any restaurants um, that are no longer with us that you miss in New York City? Mm. Quite a few, most especially Lutess, which was my great favorite for all occasions. I miss the kind of seafood restaurants we used to have in which you could have everything in a variety of plain ways, broiled or poached or fried or baked, but it was the fish uh, that was the thing. It wasn't cut up fancy. They all had made dishes, depending on the nationality behind the fish restaurant, But you could get all these marvelous plain things. So I do miss that. Um, I miss the Coach House in Greenwich Village, which is a wonderful, impeccable restaurant. Babo now stands in that spot. And I like Babo, but I can get a lot of good Italian food, but I can't get anything like I used to get at the Coach House. So there are, you know, I've lived in um, Greenwich Village in Manhattan for 70 years. So there's quite a lot that I miss, that Rocco's, which is now Carboni, that's sort of a riff on Rocco's, but a riff is not Rocco's. So. Yeah. What, what places do you love now that currently exist? There's a newish one, one year old, that I absolutely love called Upland with the chef Jason Smiley, who used to be at Buco Alimentari. His food is just dynamite, everything, the pizzas, the pastas, the lamb, He's uh, really wonderful food. Um, 
I like Granui, but um, they had a family tiff, and I'm on the side of the man who lost. So, <laughs> so you can't show your face. I don't really like to go there. Uh, I love all of Daniel Ballou's places, especially Barbalou, which does more closely to French bistro food than the others, and, and that's what I like. There's an Italian restaurant, Roman Italian, called Sandro on 81st Street between 1st and 2nd. That is my favorite Italian restaurant in the city, although there are other good ones. Um, so there are really a lot yeah. that I love. I love to go to them and uh, you know see what they're doing. So no more books, but any other just goals or things that you want to cross off a list? Well, one thing I've never done, I've never been part of a film about food in one way or another. And um, I don't know what the way might be, but that's something that would interest me, whether I was just... So any filmmakers out there, (laughs) Mimi wants to audition. (laughs) Yeah, even if it's, you know, the life of a hot dog vendor in New York (laughs) or... uh, um, Advisor on a film in which there is a lot of cooking, because I see some of those where I thought they really needed someone to tell them how hands look when they're really cooking. Sometimes they're doing things with the tips of their fingers, and I thought, that's not the way you cook. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anybody would be lucky to get you on on their film. And um, I mean, I feel honored to have you. We are very lucky to have you here. Well, it's fun. I've enjoyed it, and... uh, We'll listen to it. It's not over yet, luckily. <laughs> it's yeah. not over yet. <laughs> Stay so in your seat. <laughs> Stay in your seat, Mimi. We're going to take a break here. We're going to come back with the morning after quiz. Oh. here on the morning after Mimi your last name is Sheraton and you know that but uh, what do you know about the Sheraton Hotel Group this not is, enough. <laughs> no. well, we'll I, find out. At first, I was like, oh, is, she, is her family going to be the Sheridans of the Sheridan family? No, we're in the clear. So nope. three <laughs> questions, Mimi, multiple choice, all about Sheraton Hotels. All right. Question one. Started in 1937 by Ernest Henderson and Robert Moore. Why was the chain of hotels named Sheraton? Is it A, it was Moore's mother's maiden name? B, one of their first hotels had an immovable sign that already said Sheraton, so they stuck with the name. <laughs> or is it C, it was named after Sheraton, Indiana, where Moore and Henderson met? There's no I'll real logic, say, maybe. I'll say three. You say it's named after Sheraton, Indiana, where they met? Yes. 
You know, actually, it was the sign. The, no. the sign. They like bought a hotel, and there was this giant heavy metal sign, and it said the Sheraton Inn. And they were like, it was out of laziness. I they had, could not move it, so they. Uh, just, I had hoped one of the choices would be they found a piece of Sheraton designed furniture, it was classic English designer of the 18th century. Mimi should have century. written the quiz. <laughs> she should have written the quiz. For I thought they found a Sheraton sideboard and decided. <laughs> well, they didn't. They were lazy. That's really disappointing. Yeah. They exactly. might not have known one if they saw it. That's no, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Of that. I don't think most people would. Maybe you. Okay, question two. In 1945, Sheraton was the first U.S. hotel chain to do what? Is it A, be listed on the New York Stock Exchange? B, offer free continental breakfast, or C, begin expansion overseas after World War II? Hmm. I don't think it was the breakfast. Maybe expand overseas after World War II? No? <laughs> no, I can tell now. Jesse's making a face that doesn't translate to radio. All right, number one. Hey, yes, be listed at, on the New York Stock Exchange. Jack, can I get a yay, yay. buzzer? No they're, help there. They're listed in the telephone book, and when they owned the McAlpin, the Sheraton McAlpin in the New York phone book came right above Sheraton Mimi. And I kept getting calls for the hotel. And I called them and said, why don't you box off all the Sheratons in the phone book so that I wouldn't get them? They didn't, so I started taking reservations. <laughs> I'm so happy that just happened. <laughs> could have made a fortune, too. I can imagine people were like, can I get a wake-up wake call? And yeah. Mimi's like, absolutely. Why not? You're like, that's going to be extra. Send the check to me now. <laughs> oh, the address is different. Don't ask questions. Don't ask. That's our P.O. box. <laughs> All right. Last question. In the late 1970s, Sheraton debuted a national television ad campaign with what slogan? Was it A, the best surprise is no surprise? B, we've got taste? Or C, Sheraton, clean sheets, hot water, stiff drinks? The best surprise is no surprise. <laughs> the best surprise is no surprise. Actually, it was we've got taste. No, it isn't. <laughs> yes. All of these, though, are actual slogans for hotels. I don't think they exist as Sheraton anymore. Aren't they bought by the same group that has W? I, it was Sheraton Starwood Resorts. I think they still yeah. go by Sheraton Star. I think it's Starwood Resorts or something yeah, like yeah. that. So we've but got taste. We've got taste. We've got you, taste. you should look it up. There's a there's a commercial with this. I love that. It's very so like Men. Fosse esque. That um, almost surely lady. means they don't have taste. Well, exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's what I thought was the best part of it. <laughs> well, Mimi what Sheridan, kind of taste? thank you so much for being on the morning after. Without you, you, I don't think Sari and I would be able to do what we're doing. We literally wouldn't exist. We oh, would yes, exist. you would. You'd find someone else. <laughs> We'd be laying on the floor in a fetal position crying. I thank both of you. It was fun. Right. <laughs> this is the morning after on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. 
To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.